You're listening to The Great Coaches Podcast. Hi everyone, Paul here, and just a quick message from me to let you know that if you are looking to improve the performance of your team, no matter whether it is a work, sporting, or community one, then we've developed some tools to help. On the website, you will find our Thriving Teams Diagnostic, which uses insights from the more than 200 great coaches we have interviewed to challenge you with a series of questions to help you understand how your team is performing. It's free and only takes a few minutes to complete. If you'd like to know more, you can check out our website, thegreatcoachespodcast.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to the Great Coaches Podcast. To me, being perfect is not about that scoreboard out there. This is a chance of lifetime. When you can understand the person, you can then work towards a common goal. We are all on the same team. Know your role and do it to the best of your ability. Focus on the fundamentals. We've gone over time and time again. Your defense has got to be better. Leave no doubt tonight. Great moments are born from great opportunity. My name is Paul Barnett, and you are listening to The Great Coaches Podcast, where we explore leadership through the lens of high-performance sport by interviewing great coaches from around the world to try and find ideas to help all of us be better leaders. Our great coach on this episode is Roy Hodgson. Roy has been coaching football since 1976, and over 46 years has led 21 teams in eight different countries. His achievements are quite lengthy, but here is a summary. He led the Swiss national team to the last 16 of the 1994 World Cup, a tournament they had not qualified for since the 1960s. He coached the Finnish national team to their highest ever FIFA ranking. He led the English national team to the number three rank in the world. He led Harmstead in Sweden to the league championships in 1976 and 1979. In 1985, he took over Malmö in Sweden and led them to five consecutive league championships. In 2000, he led FC Copenhagen to the Superliga Championship. In 2019, he led Fulham to their highest finish in the English Premier League and a UEFA EuroLeague qualification. And he has also coached Inter Milan, Blackburn Rovers, Udinese, Liverpool, West Bromwich, Albion, Crystal Palace and Watford. He is by far the most global coach we have interviewed so far, and in fact, speaks five different languages. In this terrific interview, some of the highlights for me were 
Roy's view that the search for perfection can make people obsessive, and obsessive people can often then become very difficult people to live with. He suggests replacing the idea of having perfectionism as a goal with maintaining the highest standards possible. How failure shapes you. The importance of not forgetting your key leadership principles when you are under scrutiny from the media and your own club. And the importance of being tactically equivalent to your opposition, no matter how bigger or more resources they may have. This was a wonderful conversation with a truly iconic coach, and I hope you enjoy it as much as we did. And just before we go to the interview, if you're a first-time listener, you can check out our library of interviews with other great coaches at our website, thegreatcoachespodcast.com. And now, please enjoy our interview with Roy Hodgson. The Great Coaches Podcast. Mr. Roy Hodgson, good morning and welcome to The Great Coaches Podcast. Yeah, thank you. Nice to be here. I'm absolutely thrilled to get the chance to talk to you, Roy. And perhaps we could just start with something really simple. Where are you in the world and what have you been up to so far today? I live in Richmond on the outskirts of central London. And uh, my day hasn't really started yet. I'm waiting to go down the, the gym, which is how I quite often start my day if I don't have any meetings or anywhere particular to go. So it's... Uh, early in the day, but I, I don't have any particular plan for today. Well, thank you for delaying your gym session so that we could talk today. And I, I promise not to make this too strenuous so that you've still got energy left for the gym. Good. Roy, maybe if we could start by talking about the great coaches that you've experienced in your career. I'm sure there has been many of them. And I'd be really keen to understand what is it you think the great coaches do differently that sets them apart? Yeah, it's a very complicated question, of course. I mean, in, in many ways, they don't do a lot differently. You know, what their success depends upon, apart from the obvious qualities of knowing a lot about their sport and having good personal skills, you know, good uh, abilities in dealing with human beings and getting people to, to like them and be on their side. I think probably the one thing that does separate the, the weak from the chaff to some extent is is the determination to succeed, the the passion, if you like, to to be at the top of your game in whichever sport that you're that you're working in, and of course the ability to be resilient because there are going to be loads of things that happen to you along the way that that halt your progress, and you've got to be very resilient to come over that and not lose faith in yourself and not lose focus in where you think you're going to be able to to arrive at eventually and to never lose sight of the fact that to get there, you've got to keep the people that you're working with on your side because you certainly don't win things as a, as a coach per se. It's the, the people you're working with and who work alongside you, who, who win things for you. You just happen to be the person uh, who's orchestrating the band. Roy, I'm intrigued because... You became a head coach for the first time at 29, which is relatively young. And I'm wondering, was there an experience earlier in your life that helped prepare you for this role? No, not at all. I mean, my entry, if you like, into coaching was the same as everybody else's. It you know, came after playing. Mine came while I actually still was playing, having returned from a spell in South Africa where I was playing but only on a part-time basis here in England. So, of course, the chance to go 
into full-time football again, albeit on the coaching side rather than on the playing side, seemed too good a one to miss because, of course, I wasn't leaving that much behind. I was leaving behind the joy of playing, but I wasn't leaving behind a career in playing. So it made that decision fairly easy for me. But no, in fact, it really was a, a case of getting on the diving board and, and jumping in. And all I had to help me was the help that I had from the English Football Association with the coaching badges, you know, which were really designed at the time to try and make sure that you had some idea what you needed to do standing in front of a group of players and what sort of tactical things and you should be promoting and, 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 and what sort of, I suppose, uh, rules and uh, advice you should be following in terms of setting up and preparing your training sessions before you carry them out. Roy, there's been many times in your career where you've had instant success. There's most notably Harmstead, there's Fulham, Switzerland, and it happened again at FC Copenhagen. And I'm wondering what this has taught you about the barriers that prevent teams from actually reaching their potential. Well, I think instant success is something which you can't really plan for or prepare for. That's something you can only hope for. Uh, All you can prepare for is to be ready to do the job as you think it should be done and to give yourself the best possible chance as you start your first day in the job in, in allowing for the possibility, at least, that if these players, you know, get on board with me and I'm able to sell my ideas to them and able to bring them along with me and we have the, the rub of the green in terms of where we happen to be vis-a-vis the other teams in our competition, we might get some success. So you can't really prepare for instant success. Instant success is something which, of course, is very, very useful because it gives you that little bit of a platform and a breathing space because the worst thing that can happen for a young coach who I'm sure has done all the sort of things that I did and probably more to prepare for his first job, if he goes in and, you know, for various reasons, you know, he can't unfortunately bring the team that he's been asked to coach with him uh, and get success with them, then, of course, that can lead to failure and that can lead to great difficulties in, in, in getting back into work again. And we see that all the time here in England where it is very, very cutthroat and you don't get many chances. And one should never forget either that quite often, you know, when you when you take over jobs, we're talking about serious level of professional football, you know, you aren't actually working necessarily with the players that you've chosen. You know, you're working very much with a group of players who perhaps quite often have failed and maybe failed quite miserably. That's why you've been offered to take over the job from the, the poor guy who's not succeeding with them. And you're then expected to succeed with them. And that, of course, isn't always possible because, unfortunately, it doesn't matter how good a coach you are uh, or how good a leader you are. Unless you have the level of player that's going to give you a chance to compete at the level you're working at, it's going to be very, very difficult for you because we all know that it's it's players that win matches and coaches that lose them. You're actually quite humble there, Roy, because there's numerous examples in your coaching history of taking teams with smaller budgets and resources and competing successfully against bigger, more resourced opponents. And for many people listening, this is a challenge we face every day. And I'm curious, what have you learned about competing from the position of underdog? Well, I think the first thing that you need to understand there is that unless you are tactically every bit as good, if not superior, to the 
better team that you're playing, then you won't have any chance at all. Because if you really just decide we're going to go out there in the old Bayern Munich of the of the late 70s and early 80s days, playing man-to-man all over the field with a, a lead row behind and winning every game because their 11 were so much better than the other 11 that they came, came across. The idea of playing man-to-man and let's test it out. Is your man better than our man? And he obviously wasn't. Um, those days have long passed and we've all accepted now that even the weaker teams, if they organise themselves and if they have a good game plan and if, if tactically they really do understand what they're doing and they, they know exactly what they've got to do in order to, to limit the, the strengths of the opposition, you know, some success is possible. Um, often, of course, it, it, it's limited because unfortunately, at the end of the day, the, the quality of the opposition, the quality of their players will probably wear you down and, and uh, make sure that you don't you know, reach the very heights with it. But preparation and, and, and making certain that you've really done everything you can to prepare the team for the game that's going to be played and that every player really does know what is expected from him uh, and it's not just a question of what you as a coach expect from him it's what his teammates expect from him because if you you work on tactics as a team and you're working every day with sessions and practices in in, in, the, in training and everyone's seeing you know when when you're preaching if you like what you think needs to be done everybody sees it so you know you see what even if it might not be your position you see what the guy alongside you is being asked to do for the team so really and truly, you get to a situation, hopefully, where each one of the members in the team has got a clear idea of what's needed when we've got the ball and when we haven't got the ball, because that's really all the game is. It's a question of what you do with it and what you do when you don't have it. And of course, the better you become in those two areas, the more chance you will have, I suppose, of getting a team which is at least hard to beat, because I think that's probably what you have to accept, that if you're competing in a competition where the players that you've got perhaps aren't quite as good as many of the other teams around you, then you've got to make certain that at least you're going to be very competitive and that becomes, first of all, becoming hard to beat before you start taking them on toe-to-toe because toe-to-toe probably means that their 11 will beat yours because they're better quality individuals. Roy, if I've got my math right, it's 21 teams over 46 years that you've led. And I'm wondering, what if anything has changed when it comes to the art of people leadership over that journey? Well, culture's changed. That's the big, that's the big difference, I think. I mean, uh, 46 years ago in, in 1976, January 1976, when I stepped into the job at Harmstead and, and moved to Sweden, which was quite a, quite a bold move, as you say. I was 28 and a half years old, so it was quite a big step. Um, the world was a, a different place in terms of you know, the culture and the way young people were at that time. For a start, there was no social media. There wasn't that sort of pressure on everybody, which is a, a major pressure that everyone faces today. It was quite simply a case of journalists and often local journalists with whom quite often you could forge a relationship and with whom the players had a relationship. So I think the major difference in the 46 years will be the culture and the pressure that that puts upon players. And, of course, the game itself, if anything, has become more mass-mediatised, in particular with the, with the television companies. You know, 
if I talk about here in England, you know, the advent of Sky and then followed up by BT Sport and in other countries, uh, you know, you've got the Canal Plus and all the other, you know, big companies, oft, often often uh, subsidiaries sometimes of other big companies. Um, they've, they've put so much money into the sport, there's so much televising and, and so much interest generated. But of course, that, that makes the pressure greater because you know very few games of football these days at any level are able to be played without without the scrutiny of the general public and and with quite a few critical people who are analyzing the game so that's something which people have got to live with and you as a coach have got to live with it as well but you live with it in in a in a double way to some extent you live with your own scrutiny, of course, and the pressure that comes with that and the, the pressure that you put upon yourself to try and do well with the team. But, of course, you've also got to be aware of all the pressures and the, the problems that the players that you're working with are, are suffering and keep a very, very close eye on that. So I think mainly the main difference in, in, in terms of people, people are people and people have been people with their human qualities and their, their foibles for as far back as we care to remember. But I think the major difference now is, is, is making certain that you're aware of the environment that you're dealing with, because the environment has definitely changed a lot in that 46 years. And I would say it's probably become a bit harder today, uh, not least of all in, in terms of, you know, what contracts are worth, uh, players uh, who sign contracts, but you can never be 100% certain they're going to be honouring them because they'll have agents trying to move them away and all of these type of things they add to the management pressure every day because it's all part of your world but it's not part perhaps of the world that I really went into in 1976 where it was a group of players playing in a league you know where we were capable of competing and really and truly it was a question of well how good can we be how well organized can we be how can we maximize what we've got from our group vis-a-vis the others if we want success and of course you had to look after the players you had to get a good relationship with them you had to take care of them you had to make certain you were doing things that they thought were worthwhile all of those obvious factors that a coach any coach any sport even the, the father taking his 10 year old uh, son's team has to think about but at top top level top professional level today so many other factors have started to play a part that today's coach at top level has to be a much more rounded figure a much more intelligent figure I think uh, and certainly a much more resilient figure than I certainly had to be in 1976 when I when I embarked on my on my career. Roy I have this great quote from you and I'd like to read it to you before I ask you the question you say People will respect knowledge, but only for so long. Everybody needs that feeling that they're loved, supported, and wanted. And they're really strong words. And I was wondering, is there an example you can share where creating this feeling of being loved, supported, and wanted led to improved performance? No, it's such a global comment. I think the comment's really based on the fact that the, there's no doubt that the people skills are important in all walks of life. And I think there it's evident and obvious that at one walk of life where you're going to have some need of people skills, if you decide to take on the job as a professional coach dealing with 
professional players in a in the environment where success is is vital and if it doesn't come it will lead to failure not only for you but also for the players you're working with so i think people skills are important and i suppose what i'm referring to there is is the fact that sometimes we can ignore those people skills we can and i, I was probably referring to the uh, the debate that sort of once raged about you know whether leaders should be should be dominant almost dictatorial figures or whether they should be more avuncular i think i was referring probably uh, with that quote to that debate and also referring of course to you know lots of studies in in america which prove that you know the the fact that if if you can uh, engender an environment where the players or the people you're working with actually quite like you and, 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 and appreciate that you're uh, a good human being who is trying to do his best in the job he's doing whilst taking uh, um, into account the feelings of the people he's working with, that's got to be an advantage. I think it's a pretty obvious thing to say and it's you know one of those no-brainer things that really we can quite easily accept um, when we see it on paper. The only problem is it's not always that easy to, to put it into the practice of the daily working environment because, once again, all of those human qualities or foibles or weaknesses that you have are always going to be there on display. So it's a constant fight to some extent to make certain that you, know, you are on top of yourself and that you're not really forgetting leadership principles in, in various moments because you're carried away possibly by what's going on around you in, in the media world and in the world of your club. You know, dealing with failure in, in, in moments in time is not an easy thing for anyone to deal with. And you have to be careful, I think, if you're a leader, that you don't allow personal disappointments or personal failures to start ensuring that you see the players you're working with in a different light and you start treating them in a different way. You've got to try to be fairly consistent in that area. So, I would guess that's what I was referring to, but I don't remember the quote. I don't have a book of quotes, and I, I'm always worried when someone says to me, I've got a quote here from you, because I'm always very concerned. It, it might not have come for me in the first place. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Well, I hope that one was okay, Roy. Knowing a little bit about you, given the research I had to do today, I'm fairly sure that that quote is consistent with your philosophy over, over many, many years. But could I just go back a little bit? Because you talk a lot about feelings, you talk about cutthroat, you talk about resilience, and there's one part of the story where a lot of this comes to bear, and that was, of course, when you were at England. Under your leadership, the team rose to be third in the world under the FIFA World Rankings, and that was their highest ever position since the rankings were introduced in 1992. But this didn't translate into tournament success, and I'm curious to know, what did you learn about dealing with? with high-pressure situations through this experience with England? Well, all jobs shape you. There's no doubt about that. And certainly, you know, failure at a high level definitely shapes you. And it was a, a massive disappointment, both both in Brazil and in France, where, you know, we believe that our preparation for the two tournaments was good and that we were ready. You know, we had the, we had the players, we thought, although we were, what I call teams, hit by some quite nasty injuries in, in both tournaments, but I suppose that will be par for the course. I don't think we were the only team to suffer that. Um, so when the failure comes along and you don't get as far in the tournaments as you think you should go or, or get uh, and go as far as you think you're capable of going, it becomes a, a very difficult thing to deal with. So there's no doubt lots of lessons that are learned. I think it's always very difficult to pin down what you personally or I personally in that situation could could have done about it. I, I don't I don't think there were spectacular failures in the way we we went about our work. Um, there's no doubt that tournaments in the summer for England have always proved quite difficult. Um, it's not the best time after a long Premier League season, but it's too easy, I think, to blame those things. There could even be an argument that you know, we, we actually, not cosseted the players, but we were perhaps too uh, generous in our approach towards them. A, we were, we were pretty faithful to, you know, a group of players that had got us there. So there was a lot of loyalty where maybe some of that loyalty was misplaced. And there was certainly a situation whereby, you know, we were constantly encouraging them to believe in themselves, you know, and to express themselves and to have no fear and you know, not to be concerned about anything going into the game because we knew that we were well prepared and we knew we had the, the quality of players. So, you know, just go out there and make certain that you do the things that you all agreed are the right things to do. Perhaps we could have been a little bit more uh, aggressive with, with them at certain times, you know. So the, I would say that that could have been a, uh, a failing on, on my side and, and on, on the staff side. But in which, if it was a failure, it was, it's a failing in the right direction because I, I don't think that adopting a, a more bullish and, and an aggressive approach and trying to threaten people into giving a performance would have worked either, to be perfectly honest. So I'm not certain it, it would have made the difference. 
But, you know, looking back, I suppose, um, afterwards, in, on reflection, there was an, uh, an element where perhaps uh, uh, a stamping of the foot would have been more valuable than the, the arm around the shoulder and the, the trying to encourage people to believe in themselves still because, you know, we, we thought they had the ability to do the job. Roy, I've heard you talk about this wonderful idea of being a perfectionist without being perfect on multiple occasions. Now, outside of sport, many leaders talk about finding this line between good enough and perfect all the time. What advice do you have on finding this balance? Well, I mean, the first thing is I think that people have got to understand that they have a life outside of their professional life. And if you're not careful, the, the search for perfection can make people obsessive. And obsessive people can often then become very difficult people to live with and it might not help them in other areas of their life. I think to some extent, all of us who had long careers in one particular area, i.e. sport in the area we're talking about, but it could just as easily be the same in other areas of life that I don't know so much about. Politics, for example, would be an example. I can imagine people could become equally obsessive about you know their career and what they're doing going forward i think we have to be very careful that you know we don't alienate ourselves from the real world you know, the world that people live in the world that we we live in ourselves of course but the world that the people we're working with live in. so i think the, the, there's, a, there's a it's a dangerous um goal perfectionism because you know we we should really replace the idea of having perfectionism as a goal and replace it with maintaining the highest of standards and, and, and setting the highest standards, not only for your team, but for yourself. And for really making certain that when you do look in that mirror and you, or you go to bed at night and you can ask yourself the question, well, am I actually doing what's required? Am I, am I living up? to what I think is needed in this particular job? Am I doing what I think I've always proclaimed and preached uh, I should be doing with regard to running this football team in, in my case? I think if you can normally answer those questions, if you're an honest person and get uh, an answer, yes, you know, I'm basically doing what I, what I can do, then I think that might be the moment to lay your head on the pillow and try to get some sleep because otherwise the... The danger is that that obsession for perfectionism is going to turn you into a very different person to the person that you first were and the person who first succeeded in his job. Uh, and maybe I remember quite early on, the first time I was asked to, to give uh, leadership talks, it was in Sweden during the Malmö years. I mean, you haven't mentioned Malmö. That was probably the most successful period of all, five five years winning the league in a row and I just won the league with Erlebu in the second division the year before so it was six six league wins in a row for me and I was invited to give these talks as, as it's now very popular of course and your po podcast is an example uh, you know to people even outside of football and um, you know it was about how, how to build a winning team and you know what's important to you in, in leadership terms and I'd never given it a thought, quite frankly. I'd never given the actual subject of leadership a thought. I'd given coaching a lot of thought. And 
what needed to be done coaching. But most of my most of my work really was so f- focused on the actual coaching, the preparation of the team, the tactical side, making certain that people really understood their roles and really got together as a team. I think I I, I might have done some quite good things on a leadership uh, on the leadership side, but they were done in a in a climate really of being unaware and I even remember thinking I need to be careful here because if I'm if I'm not careful I'm going to start overthinking things too much here because things are going so well and you know everything seems to be moving along quite swimmingly and I'm not actually burdening myself too much with leadership principles and leadership thoughts maybe I should I should just keep uh, <laughs> leaving it all to chance and hoping that some way I'm gonna I'm gonna blunder my way through so even that's uh, an obviously very exaggerated thought going back. And I mean, perhaps I'm even over-exaggeratingly the lack of uh, knowledge I had on the leadership side. But there is no doubt that you can, if you're not careful, you can, you can make things a lot more complicated than they, they need to be. And most importantly, you can make yourself a very, very different person. I think we all do. Uh, I first got some ideas on the leadership side, really, from the American books, you know, the American, the American uh, in particular, the, the American football and the American basketball coaches who wrote very, very good books about, about leadership and really started to put a, putting a lot of things on paper, which I actually understood and probably a lot of the time could actually say, well, actually, that's what I've been doing. And I've been actually following those principles. But I hadn't been particularly aware of them in, 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 in those intellectual terms. It had just been something which maybe fortunately came fairly natural to me at an early point in my career. Well, Roy, you've been very generous with your time today, and I know the gym is calling. So perhaps just one final question. There's been talk in the press that, that you're hanging up the whistle, that you're going to stop coaching. I don't know whether that's your intention or not, but... If it is the case, or even if it is years into the future before you retire, what is the legacy that you hope you've left behind you at all these wonderful clubs and with all these people that you've interacted with? I think the people that are most important to, to coaches are people who really have have sort of um, dedicated their their working life to the, the coaching side rather than many other sides. You know, they, they are the the famous uh, Italian expression at the at the time when I worked in Italy, there are three types of coaches: you know, the, the coaches who coach the the board of directors, the coaches who coach the press, and the coaches who coach the players. Well, I've always been very, very firmly in that final category: the coaches and coaches who coach the players. And so, therefore, my legacy, I suppose, will be hopefully, you know, what that body of people I worked with over the years, thought about my work, thought about the way I dealt with them, thought about what I was able to present them with. And I feel quite comfortable in, in that respect because I do seem to receive a lot of a lot of uh, accolades, but certainly a lot of respect from the people in that area. So I think that's the biggest legacy that one should should you know look out for because there's no doubt that being recognised by the people you've worked with or recognised by your peers is, is probably the, the most we can hope for at the, at the end of the day. You know, we, 
fame fame is very easily achieved these days as is celebrity but you know i think it's the deeper seated uh, respect that people might have for you as someone who knows his job has been able to do his job and has carried out his job well that's the most important thing i think i think for me that's what i'd like to to think people will think of me and i'd also like to think they will except that I've tried to be as dignified as possible in, in the job as well, to try and try and not bring the game into too much disrepute, to try and, yeah, for the, for the, for the non-footballing person who watches interviews, um, I would always like to think that I'm putting over um, a persona, if you like, which they can identify with and, you know, that they don't turn the TV off. And I think we've, well, if that's what a football manager looks like, you know, I hope my kids never play the game. I mean, they're, they're, they're quite important things as well. And that was in particular important, I think, during the ambassadorial stroke coaching roles I had with the national team. I think that's a very important factor when you're with a national team. You do have to realise that you're, you're not only representing a nation, you're representing uh, the nation nation's interest in your sport and of course if that happens to be football and you're the manager of England that's or Brazil or Germany where football you know are gods if you like in terms of sports that's very very important you might get away with it less in other countries where football for example in Sweden in 1976 football was a big sport always has been but so was ice hockey. So in actual fact, you know, there was a, you could even argue that there were almost parallel interests in, in those two sports. We've never really had that in England. You know, football has always been so far and away the number one, even though cricket and tennis and other sports, they are important in a country of 60 million people. We've got enough people in here to get interested in everything, but, but football is the be all and end all. So, I think if you become the England football manager, you have to be aware that you know you're not just representing all these people who love football. You're also representing um, a nation and, and how that how that nation is going to be regarded when people regard that nation's football team. Just a little thing there, an example. For example, one of the things that we first the first things we did and uh, uh, was to make certain that the players sang the national anthem when when in the, in the now that wasn't always the case. Uh, and that wasn't because, like some countries, there are people who aren't English or have not been brought up in England and have been sort of roped in from Brazil and given a, a nationality, you know, forever. Any 11 people lining up at the start of a game for the national anthem, they're all English and have been brought up in England. Uh, so that's one of the first things that, that, we, that we did, and I mean, now it's taken for granted. Like, I never see a team of England now lining up and not seeing the national anthem. But that wasn't the case in, in 2012. Uh, so little things like that, I think, I'm not saying that made a big difference. I'm saying that it made the players aware that, yeah, it's not just an honour to represent your country at football, you know, your sport, the game you love. You've also got a slightly wider responsibility because, you know, you're representing your country on the national stage. And if England can be successful at football, it, it, it does actually improve the view of people from outside of England as a country. Well, Roy, respect, recognition, dignity, and if I might add, humility. Sounds like a pretty good place for us to finish. Roy, it's been a great honour to spend half an hour with you today. I 
appreciate you taking time out to chat with us and I wish you all the best for whatever adventures lie ahead. Thank you, Paul. Hi, everyone. It's Mike here. And you've been listening to the great coach, Roy Hodgson. Roy is a truly iconic coach. Some of the key highlights for me were his views that passion and determination to succeed are some of the key things that distinguish great coaches. How his time in Italy taught him that there are three types of coaches, those that focus on the board, those that coach the press, and those that coach the players. Of wanting to leave a legacy where people respect him and what he was able to achieve. And the importance of monitoring how you and the players are responding to the pressures they're facing. I hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. Here at the Great Coaches Podcast, we are always trying to improve and grow. So if you have any feedback, please let us know. Just like Max321 who said, great work guys. Love how you stay out of the way and let the coaches speak. Thanks, Max. The interaction with people around the world who listen gives us great energy. And so if you have any feedback or comments, please let us know. And all the details on how to connect with us are in the show notes or on our website, thegreatcoachespodcast.com.